Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Manhattan. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking mulled wine, and we're closing out our spooky month with the controversial murder of Alan Bono and the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. The story begins in Brookfield, Connecticut during 1980 when 12-year-old David Glatzel began experiencing disturbing hallucinations. It began when the family was cleaning out their rental property. David regularly saw an older man who wore a, quote, torn plaid shirt and blue jeans, and he had coarse, ruddy skin, end quote. This man would sometimes appear to have burned skin and quote-unquote feet like a deer. At first, the family thought David was faking it in order to get out of cleaning, but David informed them that the old man had vowed to harm the glass the rental home. The old man then appeared as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. Although the family allegedly heard strange noises coming from the attic, no one but David ever witnessed the old man. David exhibited strange behavior, including growling, hissing, speaking in odd voices, and quoting passages from the Bible and Paradise Lost. He also obtained unexplained scratches and bruises, began having night terrors, and spoke about death and stabbings. Judy, David's mother, said, quote, He attacked me quite a lot. He spit at me kicked me, squeezed me in the bust, end quote. The family then called upon the services of a Catholic priest who attempted to bless the house. However, David's visions worsened and started taking place during all hours of the day. The Glatzels claimed to have seen a toy dinosaur belonging to one of the boys walking around on its own, levitating plates and rocking chairs being thrown through the air, Debbie also alleged that she was, quote, clawed by a mysterious green hand rising from the floor and attacking her in her bed at night, and that she too had seen the face of the beast, end quote, which she described as having a, quote, face with jagged teeth and coal black eyes. It had horns and pointed ears, end quote. Scared and unsure of what to do next, the Glatzel family called upon Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens were paranormal investigators and authors who were relatively well-known at the time. Ed was a self-taught and self-professed demonologist, and his wife Lorraine was a self-proclaimed clairvoyant and medium. Debbie, David's 26-year-old sister, and Judy told the Warrens that they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands and that red marks had appeared on his neck afterward. They shared that each night a family member would remain awake with David as he suffered through spasms and convulsions. Lorraine witnessed a black mist materialize next to David, which to her was an indication of a malevolent presence. The Warrens determined David was possessed by multiple entities and brought in several Catholic priests to perform, quote-unquote, lesser exorcisms on him, but the Bishop of Bridgeport had declined to authorize a formal exorcism. Lorraine alleged that David levitated, stopped breathing for a time, and even demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition. In October 1980, the Warrens contacted Brookfield police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. Lorraine Warren told the Hartford Courant that during one of the exorcisms, Debbie's 19-year-old boyfriend, Arne Cheyenne Johnson, 
seemed to sacrifice himself to help save the boy. She claimed, quote, Johnson leaped up and cried to the demon, come into me, I'll fight you, come into me, end quote. A few days later, Aaron claimed he was attacked by the demon, which allegedly took control of his car and forced it into a tree, but he was unharmed. After this incident, he returned to the Glatzell's rental property to examine an old well that supposedly housed the demon. Aaron claimed that this was his last interaction with the demon while completely lucid. After encountering the demon at the well and making eye contact with it, he became possessed. The Warrens claimed to have warned Arn not to do this. After Debbie and Arn moved into a new apartment near Debbie's job at Brookfield Boarding Kennels, Arn started to show odd behavior that were similar to David's, causing Debbie to fear that he had become possessed as well. She told People Magazine, quote, He would go into a trance. He would growl and say that he saw the beast. Later, he would have no memory of it. It was just like David, end quote. On February 16, 1981, Arn, his teenage sister Wanda, Debbie, her nine-year-old cousin Mary, and 40-year-old Alan Bono were hanging out at the Brookfield Boarding Kennels, where Debbie worked as a groomer. Alan was Arn and Debbie's landlord as well as Debbie's boss at the kennel. He had been living in Brookfield for six months after living with his sister in Florida. His sister owned the kennels, and she had asked him to come north to manage them. Alan brought the group lunch at a local bar before returning to the kennels. During the afternoon, he had become aggressive after drinking heavily. When they got back, Alan urged them all upstairs to his apartment above the kennels. He turned the TV on and began to punch his fists into the palm of his hands over and over again. Everyone went downstairs to leave at Debbie's urgent, but Alan grabbed Mary as she tried to leave and wouldn't let go. Arn then became involved and an altercation ensued. According to Wanda, Mary ran for safety as Debbie tried to alleviate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried to pull Arn away, Arn growling like an animal, then drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Alan over 20 times before walking into the woods. Allen died several hours later. According to Arn's lawyer, Martin Manella, Allen has suffered quote, four or five tremendous wounds, end quote, mostly to his chest and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Arn was found two miles from the murder site and was held at the Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail of $125,000. This was the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. The next day, Lorraine Warren told the Brookfield police that Arn was possessed when the crime was committed. 
A media firestorm soon took over the story, fueled in part by the Warrens, whose agents promised that lectures, a book, and a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. Martin Manella received calls from all over the world about what was being called the Demon Murder Trial. Manella traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, though neither neither went to trial. He planned to bring an exorcism specialist from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priests who oversaw David's exorcisms if they did not cooperate with the defense. The trial began on October 28, 1981. Manella attempted to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession, but the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, promptly rejected this defense. Callahan argued that no such defense could ever exist in a court of law due to lack of evidence and that it would be quote-unquote, irrelative and unscientific to allow related testimony. The defense chose to imply that Arnie acted in self-defense. Because of this, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the killing. The jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days before convicting Arnie on November 24, 1981, of first-degree manslaughter. On December 18, 1981, he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, though he served only five. Arnie and Debbie went on to get married while he was incarcerated in January 1984. Following the trial, a TV movie titled The Demon Murder Case was made. In 1983, Jared Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warren, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine stated the profits from the book were shared with the family and sources confirmed that $2,000 was paid to Arnie's family by the book publisher. Debbie and David's brother Carl maintains that the Warren's claim was a hoax to make a quick buck and that David suffered from mental illness as a child. In 2007, Carl sued Lorraine and Gerald Brittle when the book was set to be reprinted, claiming it was a violation of their right to privacy, libel, and quote-unquote intentional infliction of emotional distress. The case was eventually dismissed. Carl also claimed that the book alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others, and that the book presented him as the villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. He asserted that the Warrens told him the story would make the family millionaires and would help get Arnie out of jail. According to Carl, the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and business opportunities. That same year, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of the events surrounding his brother. Lorraine Warren defended her work with the family, claiming that six priests who were involved in the incident agreed at the time that David was possessed and that the supernatural events she described were real. No independent verification of this claim about the priest's alleged views were provided. Brittle said he wrote the book because, quote, the family wanted the story told, end quote, that he had over 100 hours of video interviews with them and that they signed off on the book as accurate before it went to print. Carl Glatzel Sr. denies telling the author that his son was possessed. 
Arnie and Debbie support the Warrens' account of demonic possession and have stated that the Glatzels in question are suing simply for monetary purposes. In more recent years, the events inspired the premise of the 2021 film The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, in an episode of the paranormal TV series A Haunting. Del, what are your thoughts on The Devil Made Me Do It case? I think this case is so fascinating for multiple reasons. One, of course, you have the inherent fascination with demonic possession. You know, is it real? Is it exaggerated? And do exorcisms actually work to give the victim some sort of relief? It's also a situation where you have that small town element that everyone knows each other. And because of that, you had a whole group of people watch someone get murdered and still support the narrative that it was because of a demonic possession. I don't know if they saw something in that moment that led them to believe it, but they maintain a good relationship with Arn in this case. I do wonder, like, what percent of what the Warrens have shared is false versus true? I think that in recent years, there's been a sort of concerted effort to just drain out that show, uh, drain out that movie, and essentially try to figure out not what's true about a case, but what looks best on the big screen. And so I think that would definitely illuminate this case a bit more because without independent verification of the events, it is just a he says, she said situation with the addition of, you know, demonic possessions, exorcism and everything that goes into creating a horror movie franchise. What are your thoughts on it? It is a very fascinating case. And what you said about how people that were there witnessed this murder and still do believe it was possession. I think that's interesting. We'll get a little bit more into, you know, possession versus mental health, as we just brought up with, Carl claiming that David did have mental health issues and he was not possessed. I feel like Arnie probably just had like a mental break. I don't know. We'll get more into possession, like I said, but I don't know. In this situation, I mean, I feel like self-defense is a appropriate claim because it sounded like it was a very tense situation and Alan Bono was being a little unpredictable and violent. I'm not defending Arnie's actions, but I can understand that as a clear defense for his team. We will talk about the Warrens a little more in a second too, but it is really interesting how even in just this one story, there's members of the family saying, no, they're fake. And then there's other people absolutely agreeing with them. And I think sometimes with stuff like this, you know, people get so freaked out about the unknown and what they're experiencing that they're easily led to believe things. I don't think everything that the Warrens did was fake, but I do think some 
were. I don't know exactly how I feel about this instance. We'll share a little bit more in a second, like I said, but I can understand people being caught up in something scary that they're experiencing, being told by a professional, yes, it's evil. And then kind of like the fantasy, if you will, going further from there. So I don't know. I think that there's a lot of unexplained things in this world and in life. So I don't feel like I can say like, for sure, David and Arnie were possessed or for sure. No, they weren't, which I obviously does add to the intrigue in this case. And I think you made a good point, Della, about it being like a small town thing too. I don't know how big this town was, probably not that big if it was the first unlawful killing ever in the town's history. I do know that the police thought it was a pretty obvious like open and shut case where someone was mad and then they murdered someone. Again, I can kind of lean more towards the police probably in this instant, but you know, I'm not going to claim to know to know everything. As we said, Ed and Lorraine Warren were a married couple known for their paranormal investigations. Lorraine has said ever since the age of quote-unquote seven or eight, she saw lights or auras around people, but was afraid to tell her parents for fear they would think she was quote-unquote crazy. She spent many years praying about it. Ed developed an interest in the paranormal after growing up in the house he believed was haunted. They were both members of the Roman Catholic Church and believed that demonic forces were likely to possess those who lacked faith. They also believed that their faith protected them in their work. In 1952, the Warrens founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, NETSPR, the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. They authored many books about the paranormal and about their private investigations into various reports of paranormal activity from werewolf possession to haunted cemeteries. The Warrens claimed to have investigated well over 10,000 cases around the world during their career. Some of their notable investigations include the home of the Perron family, which was featured in the first movie of the Conjuring franchise, the Amityville Horror, and the Snedesker House Haunting, which was the focus of the 2009 movie, A Haunting in Connecticut. Lorraine also ran the now-closed Warren's Occult Museum in the back of her house in Monroe, Connecticut. The museum displayed many claimed haunted objects and artifacts from around the world. Many of the artifacts from their most famous investigations were featured. The Warrens arguably achieved more success than virtually any other paranormal investigators in history and for a long time provided inspiration for people looking to get into the field. They have also been subject to criticism, as we kind of hinted at. 
neurologist Steve Novella and podcaster Perry DeAngelis investigated the Warrens for the New England Skeptical Society. They found the couple were, quote, at best as tellers of meaningless ghost stories and at worst, dangerous frauds, end quote. Novella further said, quote, they're not doing good scientific investigation. They have a predetermined conclusion, which they adhere to literally and religiously, end quote. Many people have come forward and claimed that the Warrens helped them immensely and solved their problems. The previously mentioned parent family case is backed up by many, and the family is still adamant about what they experienced in the house. But other families have suggested that they were duped and conned into believing the story as the Warrens related to them. This includes the people involved in the haunted Annabelle doll case who feel that the Warrens were not always honest with them. Some still have doubt as to whether or not anything supernatural ever occurred in their homes. There are also allegations that Ed, in his mid-30s, began a relationship with then-13-year-old Judith Penny during the 1960s that Lorraine was aware of. Penny came forward in 2014 and said in a sworn declaration that she lived with the couple, became pregnant by Ed, and had an abortion, and that she also saw Ed physically abuse Lorraine. Ed died on August 23rd, 2006, and Lorraine died on April 18th, 2019. Del, what do you think of the Warrens? I have complicated feelings on them because while I do think that there is a such thing as like houses and objects being possessed or demonic or stuff like that, I think that their quickness to monetize definitely lends itself to a lot of it being staged, if not completely, at least part of it. People, I don't think that they would have a reason to like lie, you know, and try to hide the truth about the Warrens. And I think that as we're seeing in recent times, once you build yourself as a certain brand, you take that and kind of run with it. And they branded themselves as the paranormal couple. And so at a certain point, they had to decide, okay, well, we're going to keep this 100% legitimate or our stories need to get bigger and more interesting. And that's where you get the fabrication of cases or, again, the exaggeration. So I don't have a problem with like the Warrens and the work that they do, though I do wish that there was some way of easily distinguishing between fully legitimate paranormal investigations and people who are using it to create a narrative and make money. What are your thoughts on them? I also have very complicated feelings. I do think, and I think I said this, that some of the cases that they worked on, I do believe were real and nothing was fabricated. Like the Perrin family haunting. I really do believe that one of the daughters, Andrea, she has wrote several books. She said like the stuff that's in the movies is like not even the half of it, which is wild to think about. I think like whether either way, like I'm entertained by them, which is maybe like not the best view to have. 
I think what you hit the nail on the head when you said it seems like they're kind of fast to act, act on like book deals and movie deals to profit from essentially like people suffering that they possibly helped with. I feel like you need to be a little suspicious of that at all times. If there are people saying that the Warrens did help them, who are we to say like, no, they didn't. They're all frauds. They took advantage of you. I understand being skeptical, but like I said, and I'm going to continue saying, I really strongly do believe not everything that people experience can be explained by science, but I'm sure that there are paranormal investigators capable of investigating with a more scientific approach. So again, it's like a very complicated feeling towards the Warrens and the work they do. I find it very fascinating. I think they're interesting. Honestly, like if that museum was still open, I would be going. I think like the paranormal in general is very interested to me. I'm very interested in it, excuse me. And like we said, they are some of the most well-known investigators doing it. Now, I do say that I think some of this was real. I think some of it was obviously not real. I think it's called the Enfield Poltergeist or the Enfield Haunting, which is the story for The Conjuring 2. I think that was faked. I would say like in part by the Warrens, but like also the family. There's like a werewolf case too that we kind of talked about. I don't believe that personally, but who knows? I guess it could be possible. It's very complicated. There's no way to definitively know, like you were saying, Dell. So you just got to like take it for the grain of salt, I think. And probably really just try to listen to what the families have to say more because it's obviously like a very stressful time. And if some people feel they were provided support, then that's great. If other people felt like they were taken advantage of, that's not cool. Let's look into that some more. Next, we want to talk about possession and mental illness. Historically, many cases of demonic possession have masked major psychiatric disorders. The notion of evil spirits influencing human behavior or mental processes is used in many cultures to justify various symptoms or experiences. It is also expressed in psychotic delusions of possession, but there is limited research in this area. Even today, many cultures still believe that unusual behavior that may be symptomatic of mental health problems is caused by spirit possession, especially in some less developed areas of the world where such beliefs are still important features of local culture. Abdul Majid Ali Hassan, an imam in the Ministry of Islamic Affairs for the UAE government, stated in an interview that the majority of quote-unquote possession cases are in fact psychological illness, quote, wrongly assumed to be possession, end quote. He also revealed that people's superstition often causes them to think they are, think they themselves are possessed. Explanations of mental health problems in terms of quote-unquote possession have taken many forms over the course of history, and it is a form of explanation that has meant that many who have been suffering debilitating and distressing psychological problems have been persecuted and physically abused rather than offered the support and treatment they need. 
Many ancient civilizations, such as those in Egypt, China, Babylon, and Greece, believed that those exhibiting symptoms of psychopathology were possessed by bad spirits, and the only way to exercise these beliefs was with elaborate ritualized ceremonies that frequently involved direct physical attacks on the sufferer's body in an attempt to force out the demons. Not surprisingly, such actions usually had the effect of increasing the distress and suffering of the victim. Some characteristics of demonic possession that parallel mental health disorders include supernatural strength, which can be seen in some manic episodes, the inability to see, speak, or hear, which is associated when conversion, the inability to speak, see, or hear, which is associated with conversion disorders, Use of a strange voice or a distinct personality, which is commonly found in disassociative disorders, and violent behavior, which is found in certain conditions such as paranoid, intermittent explosive disorder, antisocial personality disorder. Schizophrenia and epilepsy are also confused with possession. In one study titled Practicing Exorcism in Schizophrenia, researchers focused on the case of a 28-year-old patient who had been diagnosed five years previously with paranoid schizophrenia and was also receiving treatment in a first-episode psychosis unit in Spain. The patient was led to believe by priests that her psychotic symptoms were due to the presence of a demon. This was surprising because some of the priests were from the Madrid Archdiocese and knew the clinical situation of the patient. However, they believed that she was suffering from demonic possession and she underwent multiple exorcisms disrupting response to clinical treatment. They concluded that religious professionals should encourage appropriate psychiatric treatment and increase their knowledge of mental illnesses. In a piece with the Washington Post, Richard Gallagher, a board-certified psychiatrist and a professor of clinical psychiatry who has helped Catholic priests evaluate potential possession, said, quote, most of the people I evaluate in this role suffer from the more prosaic problem of a medical disorder. Anyone even faintly familiar with mental illnesses knows that individuals who think they are being attacked by a malign spirit are generally experiencing nothing of the sort. Practitioners see psychotic patients all the time who claim to see or hear demons histrionic or highly suggestible individuals, such as those suffering from disassociative identity syndromes, and patients with personality disorders who are prone to misinterpreted destructive feelings and what exorcists sometimes call a pseudo-possession via the defense mechanisms of externalizing projection, end quote. According to the Washington Post, one of the reasons a formal exorcism has not been authorized for David was that the family had not consented to psychological tests the church considered necessary. Judy Glatzel said that she took her son to a Bridgeport psychiatrist who charged her $75 an hour and then announced that the next time he wanted to see the whole family, she declined. 
the belief that demon possession is merely a misunderstanding of mental illness has created considerable discomfort for people committed to a biblical worldview since the Bible states that demons are real. Professionals believe that the lack of awareness around mental health issues in religious communities must be addressed. Dr. Nasifa Sinkandari co-founded MentalHealthForMuslims.com, a mental health resource and awareness center online to better educate the Muslim community. One of the most famous and controversial exorcisms is that of Annalise Michel. When Annalise was 16, she had a seizure and was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. Shortly thereafter, she was diagnosed with depression and was treated by a psychiatric hospital. By 1973, she began seeing demon faces, hallucinating while praying, and complaining about hearing voices telling her that she was quote-unquote damned and would quote-unquote rot in hell. Her condition worsened despite medication and she became suicidal, also displaying other symptoms like quote, growling, seeing demons, throwing things, eating spiders and flies, and superhuman strength. After taking psychiatric medications for five years that failed to improve her symptoms, Annalise and her family became convinced she was possessed by a demon. As a result, her family appealed to the Catholic Church for an exorcism. In a 10-month period, Annalise went through 67 exorcism sessions. When asked to say her name during one rite, she named Valentine Fleischmann as one of her demons and provided accurate details on the excommunicated priest that she would not have known. Annalise eventually stopped eating food, saying she was not permitted to eat and refused medical attention. She sadly died of malnourishment at the age of 23 in 1976. At the time of her death, she weighed 66 pounds, suffered broken knees from continuous genuflections, was unable to move without assistance, and was reported to have contracted pneumonia. Her parents and the two Roman Catholic priests were charged with negligent homicide. At trial, the defense used recordings of some of Annalise's exorcisms and also expressed that it was her right to deny medical treatment. Interestingly, an autopsy would reveal that she had a healthy brain with no damage from epileptic seizures. The prosecution argued that Annalise had epilepsy and psychosis and that her parents and the two priests were liable for failing to act to save her life. In the end, her parents and the priests were later sentenced to six months in jail, reduced to three years of probation, as well as a fine. In a conference several years later, German bishops retracted the claim that she was possessed. Del, what are your thoughts on possession versus mental health? And do you have any thoughts on Annalise's case? I think that they both obviously exists, right? But I think it's one of those situations that you see in other contexts as well, where because the external symptoms are the same, you know, you're not sure which one is actually contributing to it. And could it be a situation where one happened first and then the other follows? 
I think that when it comes to Annalise, the fact that she weighed, what was it, 66 pounds, clearly other things were going on behind this exorcism. There is no reason that a 23-year-old should be that malnourished, that mistreated. It's like they were focused more on ending the possession than they were actually making sure that she was taken care of, which just makes it all the more sad because between her parents and the two Catholic priests, those are the people that's supposed to protect her. Those are the people are trying to make sure that she gets better. I personally think that a combination approach is probably best because you make sure that, well, if it is a possession, here's the things you need to do to get rid of the demons. And if it's something that's going to be a lifelong mental health disorder, you want to make sure that the person is getting the proper care you know, getting their medications if that's appropriate and just being able to find ways to adjust to day-to-day life. What are your thoughts on it? It's another really complicated uh, situation. I don't necessarily like believe in demons and the need or possession. So like the need for exorcism, but as I have said many times, I think there are unexplainable things, so I can't, you know, like personally, like fully rule all of that out. So I I don't think I can also say like every case of demonic possession is something mental health related. I would say that in most cases, it probably is. And like you said, Del, I think if someone wants to take a faith-based approach, definitely mix in some like medical treatment, more like science-based treatment in there. I feel like for people suffering, that might be what is best for them. Or people that do have a strong religious background, I think that would probably be what's best. As I was researching this, a lot of things came up about, well, demons are the reason people have mental health disorders and substance use issues and things like that. Personally, that's not something I agree with, but I'm not going to, if that is what someone chooses to believe in, I feel like, who is it for me to say, like, no, that's not true. So I think it's very complicated. I do think what these professionals are saying where people high up in churches and religious institutions performing these exorcisms and these rituals do need to have some mental health knowledge. I thought it was really interesting that in the Glatzel's case that the Catholic Church did mandate David to seek like psychiatric help. But I I guess that would be like a standard thing because I know it's like a long approval process to get an exorcism. Like you don't just say like, oh, my son has a demon in him. And like the next day you're getting an exorcism. So that personally I thought was pretty interesting. And I would, I guess, like to see more religious institutions doing that. For Annalise's case, I do think it was most likely some type of mental health. I do think that that there are some like weird possibly like unexplained or at least like not under fully understood things within her situation. She, you know, she was also experiencing these issues in the seventies. I don't know what mental health medication or treatment was really like back then. So 
perhaps she just wasn't really on the right medications to help her situation out. There's also a lot more to be said about her situation. Um, I've heard her parents were incredibly strict and incredibly religious to the point of like religious fanaticism. So, I mean, if she's experiencing these things, may perhaps those thoughts really got into her head and she was frightened of hell, damnation, demons, whatnot. I think it's a really interesting case. And I understand, I know the defense said like, well, she's an adult. If she didn't want treatment, she didn't have to get treatment. I understand that. But I do think it is a duty of her parents and the priest to also throw in some medical treatment or to really encourage that more. It's a really upsetting story. And I, to me, this is like the perfect story to showcase, like, is this true demonic possession? Is this mental illness? Is it something combined? Like, what is going on in people's suffering? I definitely agree with you. And, you know, speaking to the, just the process of exorcism, I remember I watched a biography on the chief exorcist for the Catholic Church, uh, Gabriel Amarith, and he was describing how it is a multi-month, sometimes up to a year process just to get to the very first one. And it always includes modern medicine and, you know, different tests and evaluations and stuff like that, just to make sure that they're ruling out the different possibilities for it. So I'm happy that you brought it up that it's not just like a, oh, willy-nilly process. Like you, you you know, like Oprah, everyone gets an exorcism. Like it's not like that. They actually have to go through a real approval process to get that done. I do wonder exactly like what was going on with her though, because it's rare that you find someone that has no brain damage in some type of way when it comes to those repeated seizures. So I don't know if we're ever going to get the answers, but hopefully someone is looking into it so that this situation doesn't happen again with someone else. Yeah, that's definitely one of the odd aspects of this case like there's stuff I feel like that does medically point to like psychosis epilepsy whatnot and then there is just like bizarre stuff like she only weighed 66 pounds and still allegedly had this superhuman strength you know she's malnourished she's suffering she's still it takes multiple people to hold her down you know knowing who having this knowledge of this random priest from like the 15 or 1600s. I don't know. Could she have learned that in school? I would think people would maybe look into that. There's some odd things that don't add up. And I did try to look into seeing how many exorcisms are performed like in a given year. I couldn't find numbers, but like we were saying, I would think the Catholic church probably has like account on official exorcisms because of this process. But when it comes to other cultures and religions, if this structure isn't in place, you know, anybody could just be doing them. I was just going to say, so I guess like, well, you can't really put a number on it if people aren't keeping track of it. That's such a great point because it's one of those things where, of course, you have like the official like Catholic church position and their process, but 
You also have others who might fancy themselves as exorcists and think that, oh, I can do this. And exorcism is a physically and mentally daunting process and definitely shouldn't be undertaken by someone who doesn't have the necessary know-how to do it in a way that keeps themselves safe and the other person safe as well. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the devil made me do it case. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the DC snipers. As always, stay safe.